Welcome to Winston and Strawn's Let's Talk Lending podcast. My name is Alan Hoffman, and I co-chair the Project Finance Group at Winston and Strawn. And I also head the firm's arena and stadium finance practice. Winston is recognized as one of the leading law firms in sports finance. And as part of my practice, I have closed transactions in the arena and stadium finance space for teams in Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA, National Hockey League, Major League Soccer for premier soccer clubs in Europe, for minor league baseball teams, for the tennis center at, at Flushing Meadow, where the U.S. Open is played, and for uh, various NCAA facilities as well. We are fortunate to be joined today by another leader in the industry, Zach Efron, an executive director in J.P. Morgan's Investment Bank, where Zach is responsible for the firm's global stadium and arena finance practice. Zach brings two decades, at least, of experience, having raised tens of billions in capital for clubs across all the major leagues in North America, as well as for various football clubs, soccer clubs throughout Europe. He's structured a broad range of financings, both recourse and non-recourse, at the team level and for affiliates of the team, whether they be a stadium company or arena company. As one recent example, Zach and I worked together on the new football stadium for the Los Angeles Rams, which is not only an incredible building from an aesthetic standpoint, but an unbelievable site to watch a football game. And people probably notice that when they watch the Super Bowl this year. So welcome, Zach, and thanks very much for making yourself available today. Great. Well, thank you so much to Alan and Winston and Strawn for having me this afternoon. Happy to be here to chat with you on one of our favorite topics. Well, great, Zach. Maybe we begin with a bit of name dropping, which I wouldn't normally do, but I, I think it does help to reinforce just the scope of J.P. Morgan's practice in this sector. So I was wondering if you could maybe describe or reference several of the stadium deals, arena financings that we've worked on together. Sure, I'm happy to. Might as well talk about what you started with with SoFi Stadium, one of the most recent transactions that we've been fortunate to be a part of and always looking to push the market as far as we can and deliver the best results for our client. It was the largest stadium financing ever completed. It started at $2.25 billion during the construction phase and ended up at $2.75 billion through the refinancing. It was refinanced through a combination of long-term debt, U.S. private placement that went out 35 years, so the longest stadium financing that's ever been put out into the market, as well as a bank loan of $1.1 billion, of which J.P. Morgan has half of it on their balance sheet. So it was a great project for our client, Stan Kroenke, for the NFL with their new West Coast headquarters. and really couldn't have ended up much better for the LA Rams winning the Super Bowl there this year. So a very large and exciting transaction to be a part of and really provides the next level of where stadiums and arenas are looking to go to, which kind of segues into another project that Alan and I have worked on over the last several years, the remodeling of the Santiago Barnabu for Real Madrid, you know, one of the largest football teams in the world, where 
it, it was so interesting getting to know this client, and Alan was part of this, where they said, we've got one of the largest and strongest brands in the world. We're one of the most successful football teams in the world. And how do we continue to take this club and this fan base to the next level? And a lot of it came with them looking at how we operate and run our stadiums here in the U.S., whether it was AT&T, where Cowboys are, or really SoFi. And they said, you know, we need to be doing this. So we've worked across several transactions to raise capital for the club to, you know, they call it a remodeling project, but it's essentially going to be a new stadium by the time that they're done. So those are two of the maybe more high-profile stadium transactions that we've worked on together in recent years. Um, But as you mentioned, we have worked with clients across all the major leagues, most recently in Canada, actually, doing a financing at Rogers Place for the Edmonton Oilers, worked recently with the Pacers on their renovation of GameBridge Arena in Indianapolis, with Austin FC providing the construction financing for Q2 Stadium, as well as many others. Great. No, that's an impressive question. It's only the tip of the iceberg. I, I know there's 20, 30, 40 other transactions you could have referenced. Zach, maybe for the folks listening, they probably know what lawyers do. We push a lot of paper, nothing too exciting there. But maybe you could explain the role of an investment banker in a stadium financing and, and how you kind of came to develop the, the expertise in the area that you have. Sure. I would say, you know, building a new stadium or arena is one of the biggest endeavors that our clients undertake. I mean, we're typically dealing with typically a generational family that's run a sports organization and building a stadium or an arena just isn't part of their day-to-day lives and isn't the same as, you know, competing to the highest level. And so these projects are, are very complex and can take years to put together. And in this space, we learn by doing and you know the first stadium transaction I worked on was in 2006 for Yankee Stadium. And what I love about this job is that I continue to learn with every new deal that I do. So we like to get involved early in the process and help our clients. And while you know I always say that no two deals are alike, there's a lot that we learn from each deal, and we like to use that experience to help our clients. So you know I guess while I'd say my role is to originate, structure, and ultimately raise the financing for a project, we really try to help our clients who may be doing something like this for the very first time. A new stadium or arena project is, it's kind of like starting a startup company with a massive mixed-use construction development project. And and so that's a lot. And so having someone who has been through that, through multiple examples in different parts of the world, is where we try to help our clients. You know, our, our end job is to raise the capital, but we can get involved years before that takes place because there's so many different elements to putting a transaction like this together, which I I know we'll kind of get to through our discussion here. But a lot of decisions have to be made on the client side that ultimately can impact the financing. And while that financing may be one or two or three years down the road, we like to be there early as they navigate the various issues that are required to put something like this together. Right, right. And for folks who maybe aren't that familiar with a stadium financing. I used the term non-recourse a little bit earlier. That's often very attractive to companies when they look to obtain financing. So maybe you could just describe the basic premise of a stadium or arena financing and and, and what non-recourse structures tend to look like. Sure. And so 
maybe just to take a step of to how teams are typically financing themselves when they're in their existing stadium or arena or before they're looking at a new stadium project. Through our private bank here at JP Morgan, we finance teams directly where, you know, it is a recourse financing typically where we're secured by the franchise value itself, but often there is an element of owner recourse for those transactions. And then the leagues, you know, finance, raise financing through their national media contracts and, and then can use those to provide efficient loans to their teams directly. But when taking on a new stadium or arena project, it is its own animal, something that is often very unique to the folks looking at the project. And so the, the way we typically structure them is in order to achieve long-term non-recourse financing, we start by forming a stadium company. Stadium company is a bankruptcy remote special purpose entity that's a sister entity to the company. And we structure it pursuant to project finance rating criteria to achieve an investment grade rating. And so the stadium company will essentially be the owner or the landlord to the team and lease the stadium to the team and collect revenues generated by the stadium, which we use to secure the stadium financing. We typically start in the bank market, which is more a more flexible place to handle potential construction risk of cost overruns or delays, and also the pro forma revenue ramp up that any stadium or arena needs to experience. And then once we have the stadium built and contracted on the revenue side, we typically refinance the bank loan into the long-term U.S. private placement market to de-risk the project. However, we do have clients that are comfortable with the interest rate risk and prefer to remain in the bank market. In those instances, we keep the project on our balance sheet. Okay. And I guess when we talk about non-recourse, we, of course, don't have the credit of the club or even the arena co or the stadium co behind it. it it's a revenue-based type of financing. And I know from going to concerts or, or sporting events, there's a lot of different revenue streams when when you either look to buy merchandise or look around at some of the sponsorships around the stadium. What are the typical kinds of revenue streams that you would monetize as part of a stadium financing? Yeah, so it gets back to putting a structure in place that can achieve an investment grade rating. And so in order to do that, we're looking to monetize the long-term stable cash flows that are under contract at a stadium and arena. And so these would be things like the naming rights contract. You know, as we have all seen, just the demand for naming rights as an asset continues to grow and the numbers that clubs are able to generate just becomes ever larger in the current market. So naming rights, building sponsorships, and that can be things like the name of your club or your gate or various signage throughout the stadium and the arena, and then premium seating. And so with those three, you have naming rights contract that can be 20 years, sponsorship that can be five or 10 plus years, and then premium seating, typically staggered 357, gives us kind of a, a solid, robust revenue profile. And then we also include revenues that aren't under contract and are a little more dependent kind of day of game type revenues like food and beverage, merchandise, and revenues generated from other events such as concerts. But it's a, it's a mousetrap that we've used, you know, kind of a well-worn path for many years and many examples and works well with our credit risk team here at JP Morgan as we look to take more and more of these on balance sheet, but also with the long-term private placement buyers. There's there's just a long track record of these revenues being paid, remaining online, resetting at higher and higher levels. 
So they provide a comfortable financing mechanism. So, so when my kids want a $50 Justin Bieber t-shirt, that, that could also go into the revenue pool? Yeah, no, absolutely. So mer- merchandise is often included. Okay. When you and I started in this business, and then you referenced Yankee Stadium financing, which was almost 20 years ago, government entities, municipalities had a fairly significant role in, in stadium finance. There's been less of that over the last decade for various reasons. Maybe, Zach, speak to how the role of the local city government has changed you know, in recent years. Yeah. And in almost every instance, there's still going to be a role for the local government just because these it's hard for these not to be community assets, just given kind of what we're dealing with, where you've had a team be part of a local city or area for decades and sort of the generational element that these teams have. So even if you're going 100% private, there's still always dealings with the local government. What it really gets down to is public subsidy and whether or not that's going to be part of the financing solution or not. And so I think it really starts with a discussion of how the value of live content has grown over the past several decades. And so if you look at both team valuations and sports media contracts, you know, it's just been up and to the right through the entire time. And, you know, I think this strong growth in value coupled either with challenged municipal budgets or quite simply political environment that's less conducive to public funding for professional sports venues has led to buildings being more and more privately financed as the market can support it. We talked about SoFi Stadium. It's been one of the strongest media markets in the world with two NFL franchises, and that was financed on a 100% private basis. And that's the largest stadium ever built. So it's that's astounding where several decades ago, these buildings may have been 100% publicly financed. Now, the largest one that's out there has been 100% private financed. And we talked about Q2 Stadium, home to Austin FC. That was also 100% privately financed. I think that was a function of getting a deal done in Austin. And what that kind of speaks to to me is every market is different. Every situation is different. And so that's back to what is our role in these financings, knowing who the parties are around the table and what's important to them and just how other deals have gotten done. Because there certainly remain markets where public funding is required to make the numbers work. And I think Buffalo, the Buffalo Bills is the most recent example of this, where you have the state of New York and Erie County looking to provide a very large public contribution in order to keep the bills in Buffalo. And I think that's just kind of the facts and circumstances that that's what's required to make that deal work. But, you know, another example that's worth talking about is Las Vegas, where, you know, Las Vegas is a very attractive market, but as a local government, they've actually been very opportunistic and strategically using the hotel tax to attract professional sports. And so with the Raiders moving to Vegas with Allegiant Stadium, which just drives more hotel tax, it makes a lot of sense in that instance. So I think when it comes to public-private partnerships, every situation is unique, but there's a lot of different incentives that may be offered to make the deal work. You know, Alan, you mentioned the Yankee Stadium, you know, Yankee City and Barclays were all done as pilot structures where the team really is paying for the building. They're just doing it through a property tax that wouldn't have otherwise be charged. So just, you know, another example of how local governments can get creative. The big answer to the question is getting public funding is a lot more challenging than it used to be. But there's a lot of ways to get creative with your local governmental counterparts and things that they can deliver whether it's through a ground lease or incremental taxes that they don't have now that would only be generated by the project so that a negotiation can be found. 
Yeah, and, and what's interesting in Austin, which you mentioned, there's a city that was desperate for sports. They didn't have any professional sports team, and and yet we were able to do that deal for an expansion uh, MLS franchise with, without any funding from the city, even though they were very excited about the project and very supportive, but we got it done with, with all private financing. Yeah, and there, look, I think given Austin's a very special place, given where we were, it was pretty much known from the start that true public subsidy into the project wasn't going to be on the table, but there were other things, other incentives that were provided that enabled that project to get done. And then it's the market. I mean, Austin, Nashville, places like that around the country where the market's so strong and growing, they can support 100% privately financed. Right. So when we do these deals, whether it's MLS, Major League Baseball, whichever, whatever it is, right, the league governing body plays a major role. They may not be directly involved in the financing, but they provide, at the very least, regulatory oversight and, and get involved in those transactions. Do you want to maybe describe what role the, the league typically plays? Yeah, so I mean, I think kind of big picture, part of the league's job when it comes to financing is to ensure that all of its teams have the most efficient access to capital. And so there's certain guardrails that they put in place to ensure that this is maintained. So your leagues have debt limits and they're different across all the leagues just to ensure that none of the teams get overlevered. And then when you're looking to build a new stadium or arena and all the leagues are different, but you look at the NFL or NBA, for example, they actually waive the debt limit and allow the team to take on additional debt, but they consent to it. And through their consent letter, they have step-in rights, which are all various things that ultimately protect lenders and investors in these projects. So I think that the oversight that the leagues provide here in the U.S. is very important and gives a lot of comfort to whether it's an institution like J.P. Morgan or a life insurance company buying the refinance of a bank loan, that the league is there to support these projects in multiple ways. In some instances, they'll lend money to the projects on a subordinate basis. In other instances, there are keenly aware of their debt rules and whether or not their clubs are in compliance with them, but also providing their clubs the flexibility to go beyond the debt rules to invest in something like a new stadium. So I think the leagues are, they see the value and want to help their teams find ways to continue to invest in things like stadiums. MLS is an excellent example of that where basically a cost per seat at the table is to have your own MLS stadium. And that's something that that league's been very passionate and direct about, but it's worked very, very well for the product and how the product looks on TV. NFL with SoFi being one of the most recent examples, just, you know, making sure that that league continues to be state of the art and cutting edge. And it's very interesting. Once one team builds a new stadium, everyone else kind of sees how much additional revenue that they're able to generate so that they kind of see the need to invest in order to, to grow the business. The leagues are very helpful in these financings, whether it's the debt rules that they have, the oversight that they provide, but also just kind of having a big voice in the room, even if indirectly, it just gives people comfort. Right, right. One of the most exciting things I've noticed over the last couple of years is how we've been able to take the technology of stadium financing that we've deployed in the United States and bring it over to other countries. So you're seeing now, and, and Real Madrid is just one example, uh, teams, clubs in other countries, in other leagues, 
for availing itself of these innovative financing structures. And, and maybe you want to just touch on that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Here in North America, we've been in a bit of a, say, May 20-year cycle where it's almost required to remain competitive that your stadium is either rebuilt or upgraded in a significant way. And so I've been fortunate enough to see a couple cycles of that here in North America. But in Europe, it's been different in that you have some of the biggest sports franchises in the world playing in stadiums that are, you know, in some cases, very, very old. And I think what has started to happen is maybe in simplistic terms, right? How can you increase revenue for a European football. I mean, you can look to invest in the player squad and win more games. And that's some investors out there take that approach. The media side is kind of managed by the leagues itself. But building a new stadium can be a complete game changer for these European football franchises where, especially if they, you know, they have a very solid fan base, a lot of them have a large international media presence through social media and just looking to further increase value of the franchise and really stay competitive as they look for ways to increase revenue to stay competitive on the pitch. Investing in the stadium is a way to generate revenue that currently can't be tapped with the existing building. And so when it comes to technology, you know, we have kind of brought the same boxes and arrows and mousetraps that we use here in the U.S., where we're looking to, again, raise the most amount of long-term money as possible. And so creating a stadium company and putting financeable revenue streams like naming rights and sponsorship and premium seating that we were talking about earlier is is where we're starting in Europe, at least, and we've been at this for quite a while now, I think you have to remain flexible in terms of structure. You don't have the leagues in Europe the way you do in the U.S. providing the same sort of rules or oversight or protection. So really just bring the exact same structure and try to overlay it. Every situation is different. And depending on kind of the facts and circumstances and nuances, the financings we've done in Europe are all bespoke and all unique in one way or another. But I think that the bottom line is there's tremendous amounts of demand on the investor side, whether it's the bank market or the institutional investor, to get invested with these clubs. And if a new stadium is part of the investment thesis and from the investor side or underwriting side, we can check all the boxes that we've got strong management on the construction side. We have a strong contractor and development team with an architect and the like, and then solid thought has been put into the business plan and the pro formas, it's turning out to be as a market that is, for certain clubs, even more efficient than what we're able to do here in the U.S. For a lot of clubs, it's not quite the same, but we are finding strong demand for these stadium projects around Europe. And I think it's because it just makes sense to a lot of people. You know, you've got this franchise that's been around for 100 years with this huge fan base playing in this building that's 50 years old and you go walk around in it and, you know, you almost can't believe it when you compare it to the stadiums we have here in the U.S. And when the European teams see the amount of revenue the U.S. teams are able to drive out of their stadium, you know, the light bulb goes off on their side as well. Well, look, thanks, Zach. Uh, Really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks to everyone who's been listening to our Let's Talk Lending podcast. I'll remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast via Apple iTunes or Google or by visiting the Winston & Strong website, where we provide insights on various topics and the latest market updates and trends in all areas of finance. 
I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, but at the same time, I don't think David Letterman has anything to worry about. But thanks for joining. Talk to you soon. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. Thanks to everyone at Winston and Strong.